You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm William Ball, and I'm continuing our course on religious liberty in the United States, and that's with special emphasis on education, religion, and the courts. Well, we now return our thoughts to the scene we pictured in our first meeting, Christ being approached by enemies who ask him about the lawfulness of paying tribute to Caesar. Tribute has several meanings. One, that it's a charge levied by someone who has power of coercion to make the charge paid. Another, that it's something given simply in order to show respect. The tribute about which Christ was asked, doubtless had both meanings, a tax and an act of obeisance to Caesar. It was in the second meaning, of course, that the trick of our Lord's inquisitors lay. His answer, as we have seen, was a statement that, for the sake of order and peace, for the sake of the common good, people must support their government in its just endeavors to promote those ends. But implicit in that support is the paying of tribute in the sense of taxes. St. Paul indeed said in his letter to the Romans, 13 verses 1 to 8, that our rulers should be God's ministers, who are a terror not for good work, but for evil. And so he says, pay taxes to whom you owe the tax. Down through history, taxation has been the subject of the bitterest of controversies and among the worst of oppressions. Chief Justice John Marshall in 1819 had warned that the power to tax is the power to destroy. That power has been used to suppress evils, but it's also always had the potential to perpetuate evils and to mold the citizenry for chosen social ends. The growth of governments in our time, federal, state, and local, is creating a tax hunger which looks to an ever-widening range of subjects for its satisfaction. This is not the occasion to review the entirety of our tax laws as they affect religion. We need instead to focus on one major area of taxation how it may affect the conducting of the mission of the church and how it may affect her right to bear witness in the public order. Here we think of a variety of taxes, property taxes, income taxes, special taxes, for example, social security, and occupation taxes. But to look at property taxes briefly. In the late 1960s, New York's exemption of religious properties used exclusively for religious worship was attacked as violating the separation of church and state, the Establishment Clause. The Supreme Court in 1970 held that it did not. The case is Waltz, W-A-L-Z, Waltz versus the Tax Commission. The court stressed a secular basis for the allowance of this religious tax exemption. Churches, it said, along with libraries and playgrounds, are beneficial and stabilizing influences in community life. But on the other hand, 
it said that a social welfare yardstick as a significant element to qualifying for tax exemption could create unconstitutional entanglements of government with religion. It also said that the property tax exemption of churches is simply sparing the exercise of religion from the burden of property taxation levied on private for-profit institutions. And the court warned that the elimination of exemption would bring government into an unconstitutional involvement with churches. While Watts was formally a case under the Establishment Clause, whose facts concerned solely real estate taxation of the church edifice, most religious liberty advocates hailed it as reaffirming a recognition of the existence of a welcome protective penumbra over religious activity generally. If a church building should not be taxed, lest its exercise of religion be unduly burdened, and lest such taxation propel government into the sacred precinct of religious affairs, then should not religious ministry of a certainty enjoy a very high degree of protection under the religion clause of the First Amendment. The court in Murdoch versus Pennsylvania, a quarter century before, had flatly stated that those who can tax the exercise of a religious practice can make its exercise so costly as to deprive it of the resources necessary for its maintenance. It held unconstitutional a license tax on soliciting of sales of religious tracts. But the Waltz decision, we should note, while holding that the tax exemption of religious properties did not offend the Establishment Clause, did not go the length of saying that religious properties should be deemed exempt by virtue of the Free Exercise Clause. Soon, however, three Supreme Court decisions would cast a real cloud over the subject of religious tax exemption. One of these was the court's holding in 1989 that Texas sales tax exemption applied to religious literature but not to non-religious literature violated the Establishment Clause. Justice Scalia dissented in the case, the case being known as Texas Monthly versus Bullock, calling it a judicial demolition project. He was right on two counts. First, here was an example of a totally wrong use of the power of the National High Court to cancel out the judgment of the people of at least 45 states, which also granted tax exemption to sales of religious literature. If the Texas exemption offended the Establishment Clause, then similar sales tax exemptions throughout the nation also did. Hence, affected were exemptions for sales of Bibles, hymnals, prayer books, all long held by states to be exempt from taxation. In our first session, we had spoken of the power of just nine of our citizens, the members of the Supreme Court, over 240 million other citizens. The voting in Texas monthly, however, was six to three, six citizens, therefore, overriding the judgments of the tens of millions of other citizens in 45 or more states. We shall look back later on this issue of the proper role of the Supreme Court in a democratic society. Worse in Texas Monthly, however, is its harshness toward governmental accommodation of religion. 
This case goes the length of holding that government accommodation of the religious aspirations of citizens may well be held unconstitutional. That, of course, goes beyond the matter of sales tax exemption. Why, under the court's reasoning in the Texas case, would it not be a violation of the Establishment Clause to permit recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance, as Justice Scalia pointed out, whose reference to our being under God is unacceptable to atheists. The pledge, like the sales tax exemption, is a state recognition of religious belief. Finally, the court in Texas Monthly, as you can probably guess, overturned the Murdoch case we've just noted and in effect disavowed Murdoch's broad teaching. The second disturbing decision of the Supreme Court in the matter of taxation was its decision in United States versus Lee. There, an Amish man sued in federal court to recover social security taxes he had paid. We need not burden you with the details of this case except to say that the Amish man in question did not represent the Amish community. They don't sue and did not represent Amish separation from the world. Mr. Lee was operating a profitable lumber finishing business. His was really not a religious liberty case at all, but we're interested in it because of the remarkable and very scary statement which the court made in reference to taxation. Here it is. Because the broad public interest in maintaining a sound tax system is of such a high order, religious belief in conflict with the payment of taxes affords no basis for resisting the tax. That was the unanimous view of the justices. We don't like to anticipate what it in fact allows that there is no constitutional limitation based on religious belief to the power of government to tax religion. An exception might, of course, be the case where a tax law or government regulation actually named a religion or particular religious use or practice as the object of taxation. Under the Smith decision, that would, of course, be unconstitutional, but this kind of thing simply never happens. The third disturbing decision on taxation affecting religion was the 1983 holding of the Supreme Court against Bob Jones University in the case known as Bob Jones University versus United States. As this case became known nationwide, sympathy for Bob Jones was not widely felt. The university is the West Point of American fundamentalism and as such has been hostile to Catholics and indeed to most mainline Protestant churches. But it was what was perceived to be the university's racism that provoked intense hostility to it in this case. Bob Jones, a nonprofit educational institution which participated in no program of state or federal funding, had long observed the belief that God had created separate races and wanted them kept separate as far as marriage was concerned. It carried out this unusual belief by forbidding racial intermarriage of its students and therefore also interracial dating by them. The university did not limit admissions to whites or otherwise differentiate on account of race. No complaint on account of racial discrimination had ever been filed against Bob Jones University in any state or federal anti-discrimination agency or court. In 1970, 
the Internal Revenue Service, acting on its own in interpreting the Internal Revenue Code, notified the university that since it was, in IRS's eyes, racially discriminatory, its tax-exempt status was revoked. The university sued to contest that revocation. The trial court found the university's religious character to be pervasive, describing the interracial dating and marriage policy as follows, in the words of the trial court. A primary fundamentalist conviction of the university is that the scriptures forbid interracial dating and marriage. Detailed testimony was presented at trial elucidating the biblical foundation for these beliefs. End of quote. The court found that the government admitted that the university's beliefs against interracial dating and marriage were genuine religious beliefs. Since the Internal Revenue Code exempts institutions whose purpose is religious, the trial court ruled against the IRS and upheld the university's tax exemption. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit reversed the trial court, however, and Bob Jones took its case to the Supreme Court of the United States. I won't retell the strange story of the case once the Supreme Court decided to hear it, beyond mentioning that the government, that was the Reagan administration, thereafter told the court that the IRS had overstepped its powers and had no case at all, and thus the whole matter was moot. That nevertheless the court, after months of delay in which the national media went wild over the administration's position, appointed one William T. Coleman, an attorney from a Washington mega firm, to argue the case, not for any client, but simply against Bob Jones. And that the court then decided the case against Bob Jones. The important thing to understand about the case is the reasoning the court used to kill the school's tax exemption. The Bob Jones case involved a section of the Internal Revenue Code, the famous 501c3, section 501c3, which lists eight purposes, at least one of which an organization must have in order to be tax exempt. It must be, says the list, religious or charitable or scientific or testing for public safety or literary or educational or to foster amateur sports competition or for prevention of cruelty to animals. Bob Jones University exactly fitted two of those categories, A, religious, and B, educational. The Supreme Court held that all the categories had to be classified as charitable, had to be deemed charitable, even though on the list Charitable was just one single category, separated from all the others by the disjunctive or. As I noted, the list reads religious or, charitable or, scientific or, educational. The court, Justice Rehnquist alone dissenting, simply rewrote the statute by erasing or and imposing charitable on all the other distinct purposes. The list and the ORs were an act of Congress. But the Supreme Court, feeling the heat of the media firestorm, could not abide leaving it to the Congress to amend its act, if indeed the Congress should do so. 
the court, by ruling that all eight categories were charitable, simply legislated. What did it mean to say, as the court did, that all the eight categories, Bob Jones included, must really be charitable organizations in their purposes to be tax exempt? The court's answer is the main reason why I think its decision was baleful. It comes to this. The court reasoned that under the common law, all charitable organizations to be tax exempt must adhere to what it called federal public policy. Any institution which discriminates on account of race violates federal public policy and hence cannot be tax exempt. Thus the IRS was upheld and Bob Jones, because of its religiously based practice, stripped of a major means of its support, tax deductible gifts. But federal public policy is a wide open term, not at all limited to matters of race. The Age Discrimination in Employment Act states a federal public policy against arbitrary age discrimination in employment. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the General Education Provisions Act each express a federal public policy. If tax exemption is to be denied to a religious ministry on the ground of its violation, not of any statute, nor of the Constitution, but solely of federal public policy, then all religious ministries are necessarily left to the uncontrolled discretion of the IRS to determine what shall or shall not constitute a violation of that federal public policy. Religious bodies, the court therefore ruled, must adhere to a governmental standard of religious practice or else be taxed. The Supreme Court was oblivious in its decision to history's testimony that one of the primary tools of racial intolerance which caused our ancestors first to flee England and then to erect the protective barrier of the First Amendment was the use of the law to place restrictions or to exact penalties on the use of properties for non-conforming religious educational purposes. Justice Lewis F. Powell, in his opinion in the Bob Jones case, though partly concurring with the majority, perceptively noted what he called the element of conformity that informed the court's view, and which to him suggested that, as he put it, the primary function of a tax-exempt organization is to act on behalf of the government in carrying out governmentally approved policies." End of quotes. He saw exemption as encouraging diverse and indeed often sharply conflicting activities and viewpoints and as one indispensable means of limiting the influence of governmental orthodoxy in important areas of community life. Here he approached the epicenter of the court's ruling, known as a danger point by the founding fathers who were familiar indeed with the 17th century doctrine of ragione di stato, or reason of state, whereby the prince might violate the common law and rights of citizens for the end of public utility. It was precisely the application of that doctrine to the area of taxation that gave rise to the petition of right in England. It was expressed in Nazi Germany as Gleichshaltung, 
or the principle of universal coordination of belief and practice with the polity of the state in all areas of national life. Waiting in the wings following Bob Jones are a number of advocacies. For example, the attacking of religiously required sexual differentiation, which may likewise offend federal public policy. Or again, the institution which discriminates against practicing homosexuals a matter which we'll address in our next session. But taxation has indeed to do with the church's mission through her social agencies and with her freedom to bear witness in the political realm. The Internal Revenue Code bars, absolutely, tax-exempt status for any organization that participates in any political campaign on behalf of any candidate for political office. And such an organization may not devote any substantial part of its activities to carrying on propaganda or otherwise attempting to influence legislation. In most Catholic dioceses, these restrictions have been interpreted to bar such things as distributing endorsements of pro-life candidates within church buildings, the use of church facilities by priests to support or oppose political candidates, using the words vote pro-life in parish bulletins. It's a bit of an irony that the carrying on of propaganda restriction was derived from a 1930 federal court decision denying federal tax exemption to the American Birth Control League. The Supreme Court has held that tax exemption and resulting tax deductibility of churches and all nonprofits are what the court has called a form of subsidy and that the Congress may properly attach such restrictions as it chooses on the subsidies it grants. I should point out here that we need to ponder more deeply this subsidy concept. Subsidy by government. If it's a subsidy, it's a governmental expenditure, and government, generally speaking, may control what it subsidizes. Exempting, therefore, becomes a mere privilege, and the state then can control tax and control everything. But there's an opposite theory, which hasn't yet been established in our law, which is that the exemption of nonprofit organizations from federal income taxation is neither a special privilege or a hidden subsidy. If people, for example, organize to do something of mutual interest with no monetary gain, purely charitably, then why is it any of the government's business? And why should such endeavors be taxed? As we consider the role of the church in influencing public policy, we must realize that the Internal Revenue Code restrictions, though applied it is true to all religious groups and indeed to all charitable organizations, pose a very severe restriction on their freedom of expression. This is particularly so in the case of churches, which unlike secular charitable organizations, have a duty to bear witness in the political order, speak religious truth, praise virtue and the virtuous, and condemn evil in the evildoers. We should not be disturbed over images of overheated pastors making rash political judgments, or calmed by counter-images of the church, peaceful, quietly pursuing the sacred, serenely above the dirty battles of the political order. Profoundly involved here indeed is the civil liberty of the church to pursue her own judgments, 
pursue her own judgments in these matters and to express those judgments to all the world. There's a profound peril implicit in the view that exemption amounts to subsidy. Yet another disturbing aspect of taxation as related to religious bodies was suggested by Justice Antonin Scalia in his dissent in the Supreme Court's June 26 decision, 1997, that Virginia Military Institute, a public institution, violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause by restricting admissions to men, pointing to the multitude of private, single-sex colleges in the nation, Scalia concluded that since they subsist in part on governmental aid and are now to be considered sexually discriminatory in violation of the Constitution, they also may no longer enjoy tax-exempt status and donations to them may no longer be tax-deductible. We saw in the Bob Jones case the denial of the benefit of tax-exempt status to a religious institution, the practice of whose doctrines offended federal public policy. And we have also been speaking of the right of tax-exempt religious groups to speak out on political issues. At about the same time as the decision in Bob Jones, a case came into the courts brought by Abortion Rights Mobilization, an organization whose title bespeaks its purposes. It sued the Secretary of the Treasury for his failure to revoke the tax-exempt status of the Catholic Church in the United States. It joined in the suit as defendants, the U.S. Catholic Conference and the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. The abortion rights people not only sought to have the church tax exemption ended, but to require it to pay taxes, which would have been due had it not been exempt. So we see here another example of the close relevance of tax laws to religious liberty. The first example we saw is the case in which government used taxation to directly hinder or suppress religious activity. In the Bob Jones and abortion rights mobilization cases, we see the threat to religious liberty posed indirectly by removal of the benefit of tax exemption. Happily, the U.S. Court of Appeals did not rule in favor of the abortion rights advocates. The reason, though you may find it a bit technical, is important for us to explore. It was that these abortion rights people who brought on the case didn't have what lawyers call standing to sue. That's a point of great interest to you and me as we keep seeing the relationship which litigation bears to our religious freedom. Let me give you a homely example of this thing of standing to sue. Suppose that on a bus I'm riding, I see X poke Y in the nose. Both X and Y are strangers to me, but I'm indignant at the sight of this indignity to Y. If I try to sue X, the court will bounce my suit out, saying that I have no standing to sue X. That's because it was not my nose which got poked. I suffered no injury. If anybody's going to sue X, it will have to be Y. He's who got injured. He has standing to sue. Now back to the abortion rights case. It's a laboratory example of the cleverly set up test case. The plaintiffs were a flock of leaders in the pro-abortion movement including Lawrence Later, the national architect of the abortion movement, the National Organization of Women, several organizations with almost comic uses of the word health as National Women's Health Network and Women's Center for Reproductive Health. Then various MDs, reverends, and rabbis. 
These clergy all claimed that the government, by allowing the Catholic Church tax-exempt status, violated what they called their sincerely and deeply held belief in the separation of church and state. The court said that irrespective of that belief and of all their unhappiness, unhappiness with the church's tax exemption, they had suffered no personal injury in the matter. The court said it was not enough to point to an assertively illegal benefit flowing to a third party that happened to be a religious entity. The church's tax-exempt status didn't injure these reverends and rabbis and pro-abortion people. X's punching Y in the nose didn't injure me. The court also held that the abortion rights people did not have standing to sue as taxpayers unhappy with what they called government subsidizing the pro-life activities of the church by exempting the church from taxation. But the court said that taxpayers may not challenge how the federal government spends tax revenue in particular your tax contribution to the billions of taxes collected is like a single drop of water in an ocean and no matter how painful it is to your emotions to pay the tax you cannot get the courts to change government spending according to your wishes. Now we've been dealing with the rather grim matter of taxation but I thought we might conclude this session with a note of comedy. The Supreme Court scripted a comedy, the, the scenario of which I wish to give you, and you may find it amusing that the Supreme Court of the United States engaged in such a fair. In Pittsburgh, Orthodox Jews and Catholics had each set up religious displays in public places. The Jewish display by Chabad, a Jewish religious group, was an 18-foot menorah erected at taxpayers' expense at the city-county building. It was located next to a 45-foot Christmas tree, at the foot of which was a sign bearing the mayor's name and a 31-word salute to liberty. The Catholic display, put up by the Holy Name Society, was a creche placed at its own expense on the grand staircase of the Allegheny County Courthouse. Above the creche was a banner in Latin reading, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, ever ready to protect our rights, sued to have both removed, brandishing the lemon test. ACLU contended that each had a primary effect advancing religion and hence violated the Establishment Clause. The Supreme Court, by a 5-4 vote, held that indeed the creche violated the Establishment Clause and indeed the menorah did not. I'm often nettled by liberal commentators' amused jibes at serious moral distinctions as medieval ponderings as to the number of angels to be found on the point of a needle they could find a far better example of hair-splitting abstrusity in the opinion of the Supreme Court in the Kresh Menorah case. Justice Blackmun, writing for the majority, made the whole thing turn on whether these physical objects sent a religious message. That depended on whether the objects were religious in character, and that depended on whether the physical setting would cause viewers to regard the objects as conveying a religious message. 
Since the 18-foot menorah was situated next to a 45-foot Christmas tree, which Blackman called a secular object, and the secular mayor's secular message was at the secular tree's foot, the menorah did not violate the Establishment Clause. Not so the creche. Away with it. Or, one might ask, hang a mayor's message on it and put a secular Christmas tree next to it? Or, Pittsburgh being a quite secular place, amend the banner not to read Gloria on Excelsis Deo, but Gloria in Excelsis Deo at Pittsburgh. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.